Chapter Two of Ramona. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ramona by Helen Hunt Jackson. Chapter Two. The Senora Moreno's house was one of the best specimens to be found in California of the representative house of the half-barbaric, half-elegant, wholly generous and free-handed life led there by Mexican men and women of degree in the early part of this century, under the rule of the Spanish and Mexican viceroys, when the laws of the Indies were still the law of the land, and its old name, New Spain, was an ever-present link and stimulus to the warmest memories and deepest patriotisms of its people it was a picturesque life with more of sentiment and gaiety in it more also that was truly dramatic more romance than will ever be seen again on those sunny shores the aroma of it all lingers there still industries and inventions have not yet slain it it will last out its century. In fact, it can never be quite lost, so long as there is left standing one such house as the Senora Moreno's. When the house was built, General Moreno owned all the land within a radius of forty miles, forty miles westward down the valley to the sea, forty miles eastward into the San Fernando Mountains, and a good forty miles more or less along the coast. The boundaries were not very strictly defined. There was no occasion in those happy days to reckon land by inches. It might be asked, perhaps, just how General Moreno owned all this land, and the question might not be easy to answer. It was not and could not be answered to the satisfaction of the United States Land Commission, which, after the surrender of California, undertook to sift and adjust Mexican land titles and that was the way it had come about that the Senora Moreno now called herself a poor woman. Tract after tract her lands had been taken away from her. It looked for a time as if nothing would be left. Every one of the claims based on deeds of gift from Governor Pio Fico, her husband's most intimate friend, was disallowed. They all went by the board in one batch, and took away from the Signora in a day the greater part of her best pasture-lands. They were lands which had belonged to the Bonaventura Mission, and lay along the coast at the mouth of the valley, down which the little stream which ran past her house went to the sea. And it had been a great pride and delight to the Signora, when she was young, to ride that forty miles by her husband's side, all the way on their own lands, straight from their house to their own strip of shore. No wonder she believed the Americans thieves, and spoke of them always as hounds. The people of the United States have never in the least realized that the taking possession of California was not only a conquering of Mexico, but a conquering of California as well, that the real bitterness of the surrender was not so much to the empire which gave up the country as to the country itself which was given up. Provinces passed back and forth in that way, helpless in the hands of great powers, have all the ignominy and humiliation of defeat, with none of the dignities or compensations of the transaction. Mexico saved much by her treaty, spite of having to acknowledge herself beaten, but California lost all. 
Words cannot tell the sting of such a transfer. It is a marvel that a Mexican remained in the country. Probably none did except those who were absolutely forced to it. Luckily for the Senora Moreno, her title to the lands midway in the valley was better than to those lying to the east and the west, which had once belonged to the missions of San Fernando and Bonaventura. And after all the claims, counterclaims, petitions, appeals, and adjudications were ended, she still was left in undisputed possession of what would have been thought by any newcomer into the country to be a handsome estate, but which seemed to the despoiled and indignant Signora a pitiful fragment of one. Moreover, she declared that she should never feel secure of a foot of even this. Any day, she said, the United States government might send out a new land commission to examine the decrees of the first, and revoke such as they saw fit. Once a thief, always a thief. Nobody need feel himself safe under American rule. There was no knowing what might happen any day. And year by year the lines of sadness, resentment, anxiety, and antagonism deepened on the Signora's fast-aging face. It gave her unspeakable satisfaction when the commissioners, laying out a road down the valley, ran it at the back of her house instead of past the front. It is well, she said, let their travel be where it belongs, behind our kitchens, and no one have sight of the front doors of our houses except friends who have come to visit us. Her enjoyment of this never flagged. Whenever she saw, passing the place, wagons or carriages belonging to the hated Americans, it gave her a distinct thrill of pleasure to think that the house turned its back on them. She would like always to be able to do the same herself. But whatever she, by policy or in business, might be forced to do, the old house at any rate would always keep the attitude of contempt, its face turned away. One other pleasure she provided herself with soon after this road was opened, a pleasure in which religious devotion and race antagonism were so closely blended that it would have puzzled the subtlest of priests to decide whether her act were a sin or a virtue. She caused to be set up upon every one of the soft rounded hills which made the beautiful rolling sides of that part of the valley a large wooden cross not a hill in sight of her house left without the sacred emblem of her faith that the heretics may know when they go by that they are on the estate of a good catholic she said and that the faithful may be reminded to pray there have been miracles of conversion wrought on the most hardened by the sudden sight of the blessed cross there they stood summer and winter rain and shine the silent solemn outstretched arms and became landmarks to many a guideless traveller who had been told that his way would be by the first turn to the left or the right after passing the last one of the senora moreno's crosses which he couldn't miss seeing and who shall say that it did not often happen that the crosses bore a sudden message to some idle heart journeying by, and thus justified the pious half of the Signora's impulse? Certain it is that many a good Catholic halted and crossed himself when he first beheld them in the lonely places, standing out in sudden relief against the blue sky, 
and if he said a swift short prayer at the sight was he not so much the better the house was of adobe low with a wide veranda on the three sides of the inner court and a still broader one across the entire front which looked to the south these verandas especially those on the inner court were supplementary rooms to the house the greater part of the family life went on in them nobody stayed inside the walls except when it was necessary all the kitchen work except the actual cooking was done here in front of the kitchen doors and windows babies slept were washed sat in the dirt and played on the veranda the women said their prayers took their naps and wove their lace there old juanita shelled her beans there and threw the pods down on the tile floor till towards night they were sometimes piled up high around her like corn husks at a husking the herdsmen and shepherds smoked there lounged there trained their dogs there there the young made love and the old dozed the benches which ran the entire length of the walls were worn into hollows and shone like satin the tiled floors also were broken and sunk in places making little wells which filled up in times of hard rains and were then an invaluable addition to the children's resources for amusement and also to the comfort of the dogs cats and fowls who picked about among them taking sips from each the arched veranda along the front was a delightsome place it must have been eighty feet long at least for the doors of five large rooms opened on it the two westernmost rooms had been added on and made four steps higher than the others which gave to that end of the veranda the look of a balcony or loggia here the signora kept her flowers great red water-jars hand-made by the indians of san luis obispo mission stood in close rows against the walls and in them were always growing fine geraniums carnations and yellow-flowered musk the signora's passion for musk she had inherited from her mother it was so strong that she sometimes wondered at it and one day as she sat with father salvierderra in the veranda she picked a handful of the blossoms and giving them to him said i do not know why it is but it seems to me if i were dead i could be brought to life by the smell of musk it is in your blood senora the old monk replied when i was last in your father's house in seville your mother sent for me to her room and under her window was a stone balcony full of growing musk which so filled the room with its odour that i was like to faint but she said it cured her of diseases and without it she felt ill you were a baby then yes cried the signora but i recollect that balcony i recollect being lifted up to a window and looking down into a bed of blooming yellow flowers but i did not know what they were how strange no not strange daughter replied father salvierderra it would have been stranger if you had not acquired the taste thus drawing it in with the mother's milk it would behoove mothers to remember this far more than they do 
besides the geraniums and carnations and musk in the red jars there were many sorts of climbing vines some coming from the ground and twining around the pillars of the veranda some growing in great bowls swung by cords from the roof of the veranda or set on shelves against the walls these bowls were of grey stone hollowed and polished shining smooth inside and out they also had been made by the indians nobody knew how many ages ago scooped and polished by the patient creatures with only stones for tools among these vines singing from morning till night hung the senora's canaries and finches half a dozen of each all of different generations raised by the senora she was never without a young bird family on hand, and all the way from Bonaventura to Monterey it was thought a piece of good luck to come into possession of a canary or finch of Signora Moreno's raising. Between the veranda and the river meadows, out on which it looked, all was garden, orange grove, and almond orchard, the orange grove always green, never without snowy bloom or golden fruit, the garden never without flowers, summer or winter, and the almond orchard in early spring a fluttering canopy of pink and white petals, which seen from the hills on the opposite side of the river, looked as if rosy sunrise clouds had fallen and become tangled in the treetops. On either hand stretched away other orchards, peach, apricot, pear, apple, pomegranate, and beyond these vineyards. Nothing was to be seen but verdure or bloom or fruit at whatever time of year you sat on the Signora's south veranda. A wide straight walk shaded by a trellis so knotted and twisted with grapevines that little was to be seen of the trellis woodwork led straight down from the veranda steps through the middle of the garden to a little brook at the foot of it. Across this brook, in the shade of a dozen gnarled old willow trees, were set the broad flat stone washboards on which was done all the family washing. No long dawdling and no running away from work on the part of the maids, thus close to the eye of the signora at the upper end of the garden. And if they had known how picturesque they looked there, kneeling on the grass, lifting the dripping linen out of the water, rubbing it back and forth on the stones, sousing it, wringing it, splashing the clear water in each other's faces, they would have been content to stay at the washing day in and day out, for there was always somebody to look on from above. Hardly a day passed that the signora had not visitors. She was still a person of note, her house the natural resting-place for all who journeyed through the valley, and whoever came spent all of his time when not eating, sleeping, or walking over the place, sitting with the signora on the sunny veranda. Few days in winter were cold enough, and in summer the day must be hot indeed, to drive the signora and her friends indoors. There stood on the veranda three carved oaken chairs, and a carved bench, also of oak, which had been brought to the signora for safe-keeping by the faithful old sacristan of San Luis Rey at the time of the occupation of that mission by the United States troops, soon after the conquest of California. 
aghast at the sacrilegious acts of the soldiers who were quartered in the very church itself and amused themselves by making targets of the eyes and noses of the saint's statues the sacristan stealthily day by day and night after night bore out of the church all that he dared to remove burying some articles in cottonwood copses, hiding others in his own poor little hovel, until he had wagon-loads of sacred treasures. Then, still more stealthily, he carried them, a few at a time, concealed in the bottom of a cart under a load of hay or of brush, to the house of the Senora, who felt herself deeply honoured by his confidence, and received everything as a sacred trust, to be given back into the hands of the church again, whenever the missions should be restored, of which at that time all Catholics had good hope. And so it had come about that no bedroom in the Signora's house was without a picture or a statue of a saint or of the Madonna, and some had two, and in the little chapel in the garden the altar was surrounded by a really imposing row of holy and apostolic figures, which had looked down on the splendid ceremonies of the San Louis Rey mission in Father Peyri's time, no more benignly than they did now on the humbler worship of the Signora's family in its diminished estate. That one had lost an eye, another an arm, that the once brilliant colors of the drapery were now faded and shabby, only enhanced the tender reverence with which the Signora knelt before them, her eyes filling with indignant tears at thought of the heretic hands which had wrought such defilement. Even the crumbling wreaths which had been placed on some of the statues' heads at the time of the last ceremonial at which they had figured in the mission had been brought away with them by the devout sacristan, and the Signora had replaced each one, holding it only a degree less sacred than the statue itself. This chapel was dearer to the Signora than her house. It had been built by the General in the second year of their married life. In it her four children had been christened, and from it all but one, her handsome Felipe, had been buried while they were yet infants. In the General's time, while the estate was at its best, and hundreds of Indians living within its borders, there was many a Sunday when the scene to be witnessed there was like the scenes at the missions, the chapel full of kneeling men and women, those who could not find room inside kneeling on the garden walks outside, Father Salvierdera in gorgeous vestments coming at close of the services, slowly down the aisle, the close-packed rows of worshippers parting to right and left to let him through, all looking up eagerly for his blessing, women giving him offerings of fruit or flowers, and holding up their babies that he might lay his hands on their heads. No one but Father Salvierdera had ever officiated in the Moreno chapel, or heard the confession of a Moreno. He was a Franciscan, one of the few now left in the country, so revered and beloved by all who had come under his influence, that they would wait long months without the offices of the church, rather than confess their sins or confide their perplexities to any one else. 
From this deep-seated attachment on the part of the Indians and the older Mexican families in the country to the Franciscan order, there had grown up, not unnaturally, some jealousy of them in the minds of the later-come secular priests, and the position of the few monks left was not wholly a pleasant one. It had even been rumored that they were to be forbidden to continue longer their practice of going up and down the country ministering everywhere, were to be compelled to restrict their labors to their own colleges at Santa Barbara and Santa Inez, when something to this effect was one day said in the Signora Moreno's presence, two scarlet spots sprang on her cheeks, and before she bethought herself she exclaimed, "'That day I burned down my chapel!' Luckily nobody but Felipe heard the rash threat, and his exclamation of unbounded astonishment recalled the Signora to herself. "'I spoke rashly, my son,' she said. "'The church is to be obeyed always.' but the Franciscan fathers are responsible to no one but the superior of their own order, and there is no one in this land who has the authority to forbid their journeying and ministering to whoever desires their offices. As for these Catalan priests who are coming in here, I cannot abide them. No Catalan but has bad blood in his veins." There was every reason in the world why the Signora should be thus warmly attached to the Franciscan order. From her earliest recollections the grey gown and cowl had been familiar to her eyes, and had represented the things which she was taught to hold most sacred and dear. Father Salvadera himself had come from Mexico to Monterey, in the same ship which had brought her father to be the commandante of the Santa Barbara Presidio, and her best-beloved uncle, her father's eldest brother, was at that time the superior of the Santa Barbara mission. The sentiment and romance of her youth were almost equally divided between the gaieties, excitements, adornments of the life at the Presidio, and the ceremonies and devotions of the life at the mission. She was famed as the most beautiful girl in the country, men of the army men of the navy and men of the church alike adored her her name was a toast from monterey to san diego when at last she was wooed and won by felipe moreno one of the most distinguished of the mexican generals her wedding ceremonies were the most splendid ever seen in the country the right tower of the mission church at Santa Barbara had been just completed, and it was arranged that the consecration of this tower should take place at the time of her wedding, and that her wedding feast should be spread in the long outside corridor of the mission building. The whole country, far and near, was bid. The feast lasted three days, open tables to everybody, singing, dancing, eating, drinking, and making merry. At that time there were long streets of Indian houses stretching eastward from the mission. Before each of these houses was built a booth of green boughs. The Indians, as well as the fathers from all the other missions, were invited to come. The Indians came in bands, singing songs and bringing gifts. As they appeared, the Santa Barbara Indians went out to meet them, also singing, bearing gifts, and strewing seeds on the ground in token of welcome. The young signora and her bridegroom, splendidly clothed, were seen of all, 
and greeted whenever they appeared by showers of seeds and grains and blossoms. On the third day, still in their wedding attire and bearing lighted candles in their hands, they walked with the monks in a procession round and round the new tower, the monks chanting and sprinkling incense and holy water on its walls, the ceremony seeming to all devout beholders to give a blessed consecration to the union of the young pair, as well as to the newly completed tower. After this they journeyed in state, accompanied by several of the general's aides and officers, and by two Franciscan fathers, up to Monterey, stopping on their way at all the missions, and being warmly welcomed and entertained at each. General Moreno was much beloved by both army and church. In many of the frequent clashings between the military and the ecclesiastical powers, he, being as devout and enthusiastic a Catholic as he was zealous and enthusiastic a soldier, had had the good fortune to be of material assistance to each party. The Indians also knew his name well, having heard it many times mentioned with public thanksgivings in the mission churches, after some signal service he had rendered to the fathers, either in Mexico or in Monterey and now by taking as his bride the daughter of a distinguished officer and the niece of the santa barbara superior he had linked himself anew to the two dominant powers and interests of the country when they reached san luis obispo the whole indian population turned out to meet them the padre walking at the head as they approached the mission doors the indians swarmed closer and closer and still closer took the general's horse by the head and finally almost by actual force compelled him to allow himself to be lifted into a blanket held high up by twenty strong men and thus he was borne up the steps across the corridor and into the padre's room it was a position ludicrously undignified in itself, but the general submitted to it good-naturedly. "'Oh, let them do it if they like,' he cried laughingly to Padre Martinez, who was endeavouring to quiet the Indians and hold them back. "'Let them do it. It pleases the poor creatures.' On the morning of their departure, the good padre, having exhausted all his resources for entertaining his distinguished guests, caused to be driven past the corridors for their inspection all the poultry belonging to the mission. The procession took an hour to pass. For music there was the squeaking, cackling, hissing, gobbling, crowing, quacking of the fowls combined with the screaming scolding and whip-cracking of the excited indian marshals of the lines first came the turkeys then the roosters then the white hens then the black and then the yellow next the ducks and at the tail of the spectacle long files of geese some strutting some half flying and hissing in resentment and terror at the unwanted coercions to which they were subjected the Indians had been hard at work all night, capturing, sorting, assorting, and guarding the rank and file of their novel pageant. It would be safe to say that a droller sight never was seen, and never will be on the Pacific coast or any other. Before it was done with, the general and his bride had nearly died with laughter, and the general could never allude to it without laughing almost as heartily again. 
At Monterey they were more magnificently fated, at the Presidio, at the Mission, on board Spanish, Mexican, and Russian ships lying in harbor, balls, dances, bullfights, dinners, all that the country knew of festivity was lavished on the beautiful and winning young bride. The bells of the coast from San Diego up had all gathered at Monterey for these gaieties, but not one of them could be for a moment compared to her. This was the beginning of the Senora's life as a married woman. She was then just twenty. A close observer would have seen even then, underneath the joyous smile, the laughing eye, the merry voice, a look thoughtful, tender, earnest, at times enthusiastic. This look was the reflection of those qualities in her, then hardly aroused, which made her, as years developed her character and stormy fates thickened around her life, the unflinching comrade of her soldier husband, the passionate adherent of the church. Through wars, insurrections, revolutions, downfalls, Spanish, Mexican, civil, ecclesiastical, her standpoint, her poise, remained the same. She simply grew more and more proudly, passionately, a Spaniard and a Moreno, more and more staunchly and fierily a Catholic and a lover of the Franciscans. During the height of the despoiling and plundering of the missions under the Secularization Act, she was for a few years almost beside herself. More than once she journeyed alone, when the journey was by no means without danger, to Monterey, to stir up the prefect of the missions to more energetic action, to implore the governmental authorities to interfere and protect the church's property. It was largely in consequence of her eloquent entreaties that Governor Michel Torrena issued his bootless order, restoring to the church all the missions south of San Luis Obispo. But this order cost Michel Torrena his political head, and General Moreno was severely wounded in one of the skirmishes of the insurrection which drove Michel Torrena out of the country. In silence and bitter humiliation the Signora nursed her husband back to health again, and resolved to meddle no more in the affairs of her unhappy country and still more unhappy church. As year by year she saw the ruin of the missions steadily going on, their vast properties melting away like dew before the sun in the hands of dishonest administrators and politicians, the church powerless to contend with the unprincipled greed in high places, her beloved Franciscan fathers driven from the country or dying of starvation at their posts, she submitted herself to what, she was forced to admit, seemed to be the inscrutable will of God for the discipline and humiliation of the church. In a sort of bewildered resignation she waited to see what further sufferings were to come to fill up the measure of the punishment which, for some mysterious purpose, the faithful must endure. But when close upon all this discomfiture and humiliation of her church followed the discomfiture and humiliation of her country in war, and the near and evident danger of an English-speaking people's possessing the land, all the smothered fire of the Signora's nature broke out afresh. With unfaltering hands she buckled on her husband's sword, and with dry eyes saw him go forth to fight. She had but one regret, 
that she was not the mother of sons to fight also would thou wert a man felipe she exclaimed again and again in tones the child never forgot would thou wert a man that thou might go also to fight these foreigners any race under the sun would have been to the senora less hateful than the american she had scorned them in her girlhood when they came trading to post after post she scorned them still the idea of being forced to wage war with peddlers was to her too monstrous to be believed in the outset she had no doubt that the mexicans would win in the contest what she cried shall we who won independence from spain be beaten by these traitors it is impossible when her husband was brought home to her dead killed in the last fight the mexican forces made she said icily he would have chosen to die rather than to have been forced to see his country in the hands of the enemy and she was almost frightened at herself to see how this thought as it dwelt in her mind slew the grief in her heart she had believed she could not live if her husband were to be taken away from her but she found herself often glad that he was dead glad that he was spared the sight and the knowledge of the things which happened and even the yearning tenderness with which her imagination pictured him among the saints was often turned into a fierce wondering whether indignation did not fill his soul even in heaven at the way things were going in the land for whose sake he had died out of such throes as these had been born the second nature which made senora moreno the silent reserved stern implacable woman they knew who knew her first when she was sixty of the gay tender sentimental girl who danced and laughed with the officers and prayed and confessed with the fathers forty years before there was small trace left now in the low-voiced white-haired aged woman silent unsmiling placid-faced who manoeuvred with her son and her head shepherd alike to bring it about that a handful of indians might once more confess their sins to a franciscan monk in the moreno chapel End of chapter two